Good morning again. If you can't tell, I'm fighting off quite a bit of a cold this morning, um, which means a few things. You're going to get a little more bass from me than you're used to. Yeah. Uh, a few unintentional squeaks probably here and there. And at least from this perspective, the craft looks a lot fuller because I'm kind of seeing double this morning. So <laughs> you think one Rick is intimidating, try seeing two of them. All right, we're going to continue our series in Isaiah. I'm trying to find a place for coffee. Continue our series in Isaiah with Isaiah chapter 53. Um, this has often been referred to by, or it's referred to as the suffering servant chapter. I think you'll see why here when we read it. I'm just going to start in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. <clears throat> Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and making intercession or makes intercession for the transgressors. As you might have heard, this is kind of a depressing passage. It describes the inconsolable life Christ endured while on this earth. Kind of reads something like a Martin Scorsese film or a Greek tragedy. And somewhere between one whom men hide their faces from and it was the will of the Lord to crush him, I kind of have to ask myself why. I mean, I get the sin part because of his righteousness, which means he had no sin. His death was able to take away our sins and make us righteous before God. But that's only part of the passage. What about the carrying our sorrows? And being afflicted by God and rejected by men. Couldn't Christ have come to the earth, made himself the ruler that everybody wanted him to be, 
pummeled the Romans, embarrassed the religious leaders, and still die for our sins without all the extra drama? I think yes, and so I have to ask, why didn't he? I used to handle all the intake for new hires at our company, and part of that process included a welcome video from our president. He sat there in his nice suit, clearly reading from a teleprompter, and welcoming the new person into the family and giving them hope for a bright career in the ever-exciting world of insurance billing. The video had the same effect on everyone, kind of a, oh, that's nice, but where's the coffee look on their face? Then I would say something that would always generate a spark in their eyes. I would say, you know, he started off as a driver in a local center just like ours. And inevitably, I would get a really interesting, really, as a reply. There's that squeak. <clears throat> now, why do you suppose I got more of a reaction from that one comment than the entire scripted video could elicit? Aside, of course, from my natural charisma and charming personality. But I think it's because when they're watching the video, the president was just a man in a suit to them, making much more money than one person should make and making it off all the hard work of those he called family. But my comment made him one of us. Suddenly, the new hire could feel a camaraderie with him. He knew the struggles of the eight to five with the overtime and the pressures felt from uncaring bosses. That comment earned him more respect than the whole video. You see, there are two kinds of authority. There's the positional authority, which comes from a title. And then there's the relational authority, which comes from earned respect. Many people lead from positional authority, but only true leaders lead from relational authority. That's because in order to gain relational authority, one must go through the struggles and difficulties of those he or she intends to lead. That's the most legitimate way to earn someone's respect. Suffer like they suffer. To be willing to walk in their shoes. Don't you find it a little bit weird about those scriptures that talk about God the Father wanting to make Jesus suffer, even crush him? Modern critics call God an abusive father. But to really know if a parent is abusive or loving, you have to understand their motives. Is it abusive for a dad to send a rebellious 18-year-old off to boot camp for a little discipline, even though the kid will probably be crushed? Or let go of that bike, even though he knows the kid is probably going to fall down and skin his knee, or even worse, break his arm? These are intentional acts of pain we parents will prompt for the betterment of our kids. But it's all about motive. Is this ultimately for the child's harm or for their good? So what was God's purpose? What was God's motive? We find part of that answer in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, 
he is able to help those who are also being tempted. Jesus had to go through what we go through in order to be the king, not only by positional authority, but by relational authority. He had to suffer both the anguish of death for our sins and the anguish of life as well. His death gives us peace with God the Father, but his life gives us a king worthy of our hearts. He's not just another crown. He is acquainted with our griefs and our sorrows. Listen to this list here and see if you relate to any of these. An inconvenient birth, raised in a poor family in a poor town, misunderstood by his parents, physically unattractive, a low-class job with low-class pay, hated by the government, hated by the church, betrayed by one of his best friends, publicly rejected by another, punished for something he didn't do, forced to abandon his flesh and blood, publicly ridiculed, pushed beyond his physical limits, cried out to God to save him with silence being the only answer, constantly having his words twisted, put on trial by corrupt politicians, and given the death penalty by a jury of his peers with one word, crucify. And there's so much more that probably isn't recorded for us. Do you relate to any of those? If you do, that is why he suffered. He suffered because someday you would suffer. And by being willing to go through what you went through, he made a way to earn your respect, even your love. And when he has your love, he has you. You are his kingdom. You are his reward. Look again at verse 12 in Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. You see, you are the many. You are his spoil. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You're looking around here and thinking, boy, did he get the wrong end of the deal? We get eternal life and he gets us. But you know what? God knows you. And he knows me. And he has compared this kingdom of us to all the possible riches of the world. And you know what? He chose us. He chose you. He chose me. Perhaps you've heard that the greatest treasure a person can have is family and friends. Well, what are family and friends? They're designed to be deep, meaningful, real relationships. The most satisfying experience a soul can have is to know and to be known deeply. Jesus wants a relationship where he knows you and you know him and you are devoted to each other. The Bible speaks of you as his greatest reward. But you can't be won by power or bought by money. You must be won by love and bought by sacrifice. So the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is really the overcoming king. He is a true king who rides out in front facing the enemy head on. And the way he overcomes the evil of this world is by becoming a servant. 
You see, we hear suffering servant in our westernized American thinking, and we automatically think weak. Only a weak person suffers because nobody suffers willingly, and so a strong person saves himself. Only a weak person is a servant because nobody serves willingly, and so the strong become the masters. But God did. The creator of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, chose to suffer because that was how to overcome the hardness of our hearts. He chose to serve because that was how to be the true king of our hearts. The world sees suffering servant, but those with eyes to see and hearts to understand see overcoming king. <clears throat> and it doesn't end there. The next line of verse 12 says, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So this king, who has gained this kingdom of deep friendships and loyal followers, wants to share that soul satisfaction with others. That sounds good. How do I get some of that? How smart do I have to be? How much of the Bible do I have to memorize? How many people do I have to save? How often do I have to fast? What religious books do I have to read? What do I have to do to be considered strong enough to share some of that soul-satisfying spoil of the kingdom? None of it. God doesn't require any of that. In keeping with the context of this passage, I think the strong will be determined in the same way Christ won the kingdom. It is the strength of the suffering servant. Jesus looked at your needs and he said, I will take that for you. You're waking up depressed. You're feeling like God isn't listening and the whole world is bearing down on you. Jesus says, I'm going to walk through that as well. And when I get to the end, I'm going to be able to look back and say to you, it's all worth it. The trick is, really listen here, the trick is stop suffering for yourself. Listen, in this world there will be tribulation. Accept it. You can't get away from it. As my father-in-law says, everyone dies in the end. But fear not, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. The trick is, he didn't live for himself, and so he didn't suffer for himself. He lived for you. So he suffered for you, and his reward is you. What is your reward in the kingdom? It's a simple answer. Who are you living for? Philippians chapter 2 spells this out for us. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> we live in such a prosperous society that we have made ease our idol. There was a time when a good day was finding food and surviving an attack from a neighboring tribe. Now, we lose our cell phone and life isn't worth living. Right? I mean, what good can possibly come from a Tuesday if I can't post another picture of myself on Facebook, steal a quote from Instagram, defeat a level of Angry Birds, and listen to my political podcast? We're so spoiled that instead of making selfishness the enemy, we've made work and difficulty the enemy. From commercials to education to retirement, every message in our society speaks one ultimate goal. How can I get the most out of my life by doing the least? And you know what? Many of those messages work. There are a lot of opportunities to make a good living while having a lot of free time to spend on ourselves. It seems like every week, there seem to be more and more books published on how to make more money by doing less work, how to retire in style, and how to vacation like a boss. But everything has its cost. And every week, there seem to be more and more books on how to have a friendly divorce, how to parent rebellious teens, and how to gain trust on social media. Our ability to live the good life is constantly increasing while our ability for deep, meaningful relationships is constantly decreasing. Why do you think that's so? Because deep relationships require difficulty, work, and yes, sometimes suffering. Everything that our society is opposed to, everything that we're taught not to do. Yes, Jesus probably could have died for our sins based solely on positional authority. But he didn't. That's because he didn't just want your obedience. He wanted your love. And that could only be gained by the strength of a suffering servant, which, as we now know, is truly the strength of an overcoming king. And the spoils of his kingdom are there. In fact, they're here. You're sitting next to them. Your spouses, your children, your friends, your co-workers, they hold, in their ability to give you their love, the keys to the riches of the kingdom. But it's not gained by power, wealth. It's gained by the power of the cross. The ultimate battle for the ultimate suffering servant. And because he overcame, we now, in him, can overcome. As the worship team comes, I want to close with a prayer from 1 Peter chapter 5.
So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.